Thanks for the download. Thank you for tuning in to episode 150 of Coming Up Next, the podcast. And if you want to support the show, you can go to comingupnext.com.au where you can find links to Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, uh, where you can subscribe to the show and uh, the next 150 episodes will automatically be downloaded for you. Which is very convenient if you uh, if you were to be asking me. You can also find the previous 149 episodes of the show there for your streaming convenience. A big thank you to Emma Lawton for coming on the show last week and sharing her story about getting a Parkinson's disease diagnosis at the age of 29 and about how she's managed to turn that into something tremendously positive uh, with 365s.com and that campaign is still running so if you want to go to 365s which is all words with an s at the end.com you can find out more information there. Corey Chen is my guest this week. She is a film and television director predominantly working in the television space at the moment. Uh, Last year she had a breakout year uh, directing blocks for Mustangs FC, uh, Sisters, and most recently Homecoming Queens, uh, which is available on SBS On Demand. She's an incredible director with quite a remarkable story. So without further rambling, uh, let's get into it. Episode 150 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with Corey Chen. Went uh, on SBS On Demand last night and watched the first episode of Homecoming Queens. Yeah, great. It's a tremendous show. Really, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, um, you know, one of the things that I sort of noticed when I was looking over your body of work is how kind of personal you you tend to make everything. And I guess I wondered how important that is for you as a as a creative, as a filmmaker, to you know, not be reaching for kind of other, th- uh, you know, bigger ideas or that's the wrong kind of phrasing, but like you're not, it doesn't seem like you're giving an, or you're, you're making something for an audience. It feels like you're making stuff that is important to you. Yeah, I, you know, that's interesting because I guess I've never thought about it like that, but it makes complete sense hearing someone say that um back to me and I think uh, you know I went to VCA and part of the training from the get-go was um for better or worse write what you know and that sentiment has really stayed with me even if I'm not writing the scripts which a lot of the time I'm working with a writer but it's um I think so much of the storytelling I'm interested in it's about a feeling. So for me, my job as a director should be the bridge between the intention of words on a page and what the audience is experiencing and that is creating that emotion. So, and on the, the, the second part to that is, um, you know, whether I like it or not, the personal is political and, you know, given the conversation that's going on at the moment with diversity and inclusion, um, I can't help but put something that I'm really passionate in uh, across my work. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a remarkable time in, I think, film and, and I guess on a global scale as well in terms of this paradigm shift that's happening with diversity and inclusion for all people. Um, and I suppose, I mean, you, I've been following you on Twitter for, for some time and you've been a massive advocate for this shift for, for a while. I guess what's it been like for you over the last couple of years to uh, be, be, be someone within that shift? Yeah, I, um, it's, I 
I feel extremely lucky to exist in this time because, you know, I always sit down and go, gee, if this is the early 90s or the 80s or whatever, someone like me would not have these opportunities to have my voice heard. But, um, you know, like my earlier, like all my first shorts actually were about the immigrant experience and I never consciously sat down and went, I'm going to talk about the immigrant experience because of diversity <laughs> and the importance of it. I, I just, you know, again, it came from a place where I I wanted to really express something that I knew to be true um, and I knew to be different to pr- all the other shorts that were getting made at VCA at the time. So, yeah, it wasn't a strategic move by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then, yeah, b- because it was coming from such a personal and passionate place, I um, it was something that I really wanted to develop as as part of my as part of my authorial voice as well. Um, and yeah, the rest of the world. Um, it all sort of exploded and I happened to have been around, I think. And, um, yeah, really experienced the, um, the positives of that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is, it is, it is hard though, because I think, you know, as all creatives go, you do suffer the imposter syndrome, like how much of this is because I'm good and how much of it is just because it's right place, right time. Um, and I have noticed stuff like whenever there's an article about diversity, they'll just randomly use a photo of me for no reason other right. than that. Oh, well, here's something. Let's just slap slap this photo in, um, which can be really frustrating because I don't feel like I'm spoken about enough because of my work. Um, it's more for what I stand for which is fine in its own right but um you feel as though the pendulum's swinging in the like the wrong way it's not kind of it's I think it's just frustrating because when I'm used as a poster child for diversity when and and I'm not in control of that narrative that scares me a bit because I don't know where that can go because just the, the internet moves so quickly and you know I occasionally get some trolls as well very very you know not it's not a serious thing but um yeah stuff like that makes me go hmm I um I feel like I should be the only one that's able to talk about it right <laughs> yeah is there a feeling like we're demonstrate not not you I mean but like whoever the publication is yeah. is going we're demonstrating that we're diverse here's diversity and this is what it looks like as opposed to it being a genuine like yeah let's just demonstrate like let's just put the idea into practice as mm. opposed to showing kind of showing it off yeah rather it's never talking about um the consequences i.e the works produced it's yeah always talking about diversity yeah as a theoretical thing still um and that is frustrating yeah i could imagine yeah um so you were born in taiwan Mm -hmm. and how old were you when you moved to melbourne uh about nine and a half or yeah 10 years old we lived in sydney first my parents and i and then eventually down to melbourne um for work reasons for them but yeah i was about yeah nine or ten right and couldn't speak english oh wow that must have been uh challenging yeah it really was i think you know credit to my parents um when i think back on that time i largely remember it as being a warm happy time but if i now that i'm older i kind of really pick at it and i and I just think, geez, it would have been so hard for my mom as well because she couldn't speak English and had left all her friends and family. And, um, yeah, and obviously me and I couldn't, because of visa reasons, I couldn't go to school for a couple of years. Right. So I was, yeah, so like I was more or less homeschooled by television um, and learned English that way. Yeah. Right. And do you, do you have any memories of living in Taiwan? Uh, I do. It's um, 
pretty foggy and a lot of the time I kind of go I don't know if they're real memories or memories I've created in my mind through stories my parents are telling me um but I've been back only twice in like the 20 years I've been here and every time I go more stuff comes flooding back to me um that feels a bit more authentic than what I think are my memories yeah there's something quite, uh, I guess, tactile about being in the space and the uh, like your other senses, I guess, being stimulated. Yeah, it's more, it's just the details of it that makes me realize the difference um, between what's real and, and what's not. Like, I feel like I'll remember um, the feeling of a certain fabric or a smell as opposed to... Um, what happened in that scene did you kind of get uh tickled by the filmmaking bug was that something that you can remember through your childhood or was it something that came to you a bit later it was actually my dad's suggestion which he regretted later on (laughs) um what did your dad do my parents are entrepreneurs so they do a little bit of everything it's a very classic immigrant um but at the time they sold computers and this was in the mid 90s um yeah but he because i was struggling to make friends and it was like one of my first sleepover parties i was gonna have some people around and they got a bit enthusiastic and um, my dad had an old um video camera at the time and he was like oh well i think it was actually for my 12th or 13th birthday and he was like, well, you can have this now and maybe you can like film some stuff of your friends. <laughs> um, yeah, so one of the first things I made it was at, at that sleepover and it was a, um, a, a, a remake, well, an attempted shot-by-shot remake of the opening of Scream. Um, it's awful. It's not at all a shot-by-shot <laughs> remake. Um, and it was all like because I didn't understand filmmaking, it was all edited in camera. So like in mid-action, I'd get all my friends to freeze and I'd change the camera angle <laughs> and keep recording and freeze. And yeah, it's very, very lo-fi. But um, it kind of kicked in from there. So every sleepover, it would be a thing that we'd do a music video or a little scene from something. And yeah, it just hung around. I That's couldn't shake cool. it. Yeah, yeah right. And were you ever in front of the camera or you were always... No. <laughs> no, no, I'm awful in front of the camera. I think that was also partly why um, I was so interested because I knew I would definitely be behind the camera and in control of how things were remembered. Um, but yeah, I am so bad at taking direction in front of the camera. Right. And I'm always, <laughs> even now, like for any publicity stuff, I'm always staring down the barrel and like, deer in the headlights yeah Mm, i have a lot of respect for actors because of that so you were doing these um these shorts and well shorts remakes music videos yeah uh and were your parents encouraging of you kind of when you were getting towards the end of your high school and you were like maybe i'll go and study this properly oh no not at all (laughs) not at all they were alarmed and um they they were basically like cool that's great so how about you do law then um yeah but i it it never felt real i knew i loved it but i had no idea what it meant um i did you know like i remember going to the vca open day when i was 18 back in 2004 or something um, and they, at the time, they didn't take 18-year-olds either. So it just didn't feel like a solution. So I think I, after high school, I went and did a year of an arts commerce degree or something, got terribly depressed. And my parents saw that and was like, well, go and do what you want. Um, but I still didn't have the belief or guts to think that this was... A real career so I went and did an immediate degree instead yeah right you kind of dipped your toe in but didn't yeah. put the whole foot in yeah yeah right. definitely um but yeah I made a short there it was at RMIT and the um 
the tutor, like the part-time tutor at the time said, um, you should try and apply for VCA with this short. I think you'd get in. And I did. And Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. And what was the process like at that point? I guess you kind of understood that you didn't have to edit stuff in camera anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, by <laughs> by the end of um, high school, um, like non-linear editing kicked in <laughs> and um, I was able to... some Final Cut. Yeah. Yeah. A bit of Final Cut, a bit of mini DV action. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 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 It was really professional. <laughs> I've still got a box of mini DV tapes that I need to dump from about 2008. Yeah, I have a lot. Um, I want to try and transfer it before it becomes obsolete, I think. Mm. Yeah, we might be a little bit late for that. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so many memories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, trying to track down one of those decks. That, mm. Like You would think that people would just be giving them away. Yeah. But they're so expensive. Yeah, they're yeah. like four to six hundred dollars for one. Yeah. Um. Well, that's cool. So you, what was the process then, I guess, for you of making this first short film um, at uh, when you were doing this media mm. course? It was a final year grad project and it was, you know, media degrees. It's kind of like whatever you make of it is fine. Um, so we had an option of doing like a five to ten minute short. And um, RMIT had a really, really old Super 16 camera that still worked and um it's it feels incredible now thinking about shooting on film but yeah Yeah. somehow we kind of degrees yeah but we just cobbled together a few thousand dollars to buy some stock and learn how to load a film canister and yeah and just kind of went off and shot something and i so i made this (laughs) sci-fi that was about a um um a Chinese couple, it's, it was as um, the citizenship test was kicking in in Australia. So it was sort of a play on that where um, the idea of assimilation is really taken to a darker, more heightened place. Right. Yeah. But it was like a dark comedy sci-fi. Very, very, very gorilla and lo-fi <laughs> like i don't want anyone to see that film ever. ever yeah it's not online it's it's just i think i right. have a dvd somewhere it's on a mini dv tape yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah that was what i applied to vca with and yeah got in I actually read on your website that you wanted to be an astronaut before you got into film that's right that's right. I guess yeah. that stemmed your sci-fi film stem. Yeah, from... yeah. I really wanted to either an astronaut or um, an astronomer for most of my childhood, right before filmmaking. Yeah, but my dad was just like, "You can't do that. <laughs> there are no female astronauts." Um, but yeah, but then handed me a camera instead. So right. yeah, I would still love to go into space. Mm. The, the idea of, um, the, I just want to experience having no gravity. I think that's something you can do in Earth, on Earth, actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there are services for that. Yeah, um, it's going to roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, that's something that I'm very interested in. Yeah, I interviewed an astronaut, actually, uh, maybe about six months ago. And listening to the way that he would describe like watching the kind mm. of mechanics of a day, like of Earth, like an Earth day. Seeing, and he's like, he said something like, the sun rises and sets every 90 minutes. Wow. From <laughs> outer space. I'm like, it just completely blows the concept of time. Yeah, yeah. To pieces. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So you, you got into VCA. This was the master's. I did the, I kind of got into VCA in a weird way in that by the time I thought to apply, I had missed all their master's and grad certificate um, cutoffs. The only thing that was available was um, the honours year for an undergrad. And I was like, oh, I'll just apply for that. And um, by the time I got to the interview, they were all like, no one from the outside has ever applied for this. Like, you're not allowed to do this. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, on the website, it said that you just had to have an undergrad. You didn't say that you had to be from VCA. Anyway, they were really suspicious, really standoffish in my interview. So I kind of walked away going, well, I won't get in. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, so then I got in and it was the first time they had taken someone from outside of the school. Um, but since then it kind of triggered a thing where they allowed people to, to do, to just kind of step in and do the honors year mm. without having been there. Oh, you made a good. change. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Fairly bureaucratic system. Yeah, 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 That's I know. That's pretty cool. So yeah, I did that and then I did a year of master's. So, yeah, I spent two years at VCA. Yeah. And you finished around sort of 2012, uh, 2011? Yeah, 2011, yeah. Right. And I saw uh, your short um, Happy Country. Oh, yeah. And actually just listening to what you were saying before, I guess, about when you first moved to Australia mm. from Taiwan and you couldn't speak English and your mum couldn't speak English. Yeah. I feel like that kind of story is embedded in happy country yeah so yeah happy country was my first vca short and um and that road trip was very largely or heavily inspired by my parents because when we moved from sydney to melbourne it was cramming every single thing we owned into a station wagon and driving down and in my mind that trip took weeks just because (laughs) i was a child and time moved very slowly then um yeah, and in the original versions of the script, there was a kid character sort of um, observing this whole incident. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely largely based in conversations between my parents. Mm. And through making that short. Do you still collaborate with some of the people that you worked with on that? I know that you know a lot of people. People who I've spoken to on the show have um, who've been to film school have often sort of cited the people that they met as the most important or significant part of actually going to film school instead of just going out and trying to get a job. Yeah. Um, was that the case for you in terms of starting that collaborative relationship? Yeah, not on the, my first VCA short, but on my second one, um, my master's short, Wonder Boy, the DOP on that, Michael Latham, is someone that I've shot heaps of stuff with and he shot for example he shot homecoming queens and quite a few of my other shorts as well and um i had met michael at vca at the same time because he was doing his undergrad and uh i completely agree part of film school is is finding your tribe and who you click with yeah actually i saw that um you went with uh, with michael to shoot Tinseltown. Yes, that's right. That must have been quite a trip. Yeah, yeah, that was insane. That was me um, trying to turn my life. I, I went through a midlife career, um, midlife <laughs> crisis in my career in that I just didn't understand the point of filmmaking anymore. Yeah. Um, How long ago was this? Uh, like 2015. Right, so only a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of went, I don't, it just became all about ticking boxes yeah, and you get this you get and, this money and yeah. then you do like rather than what is it that I want to say I just I felt like I'd forgotten about that for a little bit so um yeah I kind of went oh um yeah I saw this article about um Christmas factories in in China and it just kind of gave me an excitement that I hadn't felt in quite a while and I just thought oh, okay well, let's just go and see what happens. Um, and yeah, and luckily... You went with Michael and Michael's a camera. as crazy <laughs> and as much of a nomad as I am and agreed. And yeah, we just kind of set off and had some crazy times. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How long were you there for? About a month. Right. Yeah, so I went earlier by myself to just kind of suss things out. I was probably there for about a week, a week and a half. And there were times during that week when I went, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I'm just in these factories with strange men and they're like taking me up an escalator. And I was, I just hit me and went, I have not told anyone where I am today. I could just disappear right now and no one would know. But I kind of fed all of that back into the film and um, it was really an exploration of of a world and once you'd uh once you'd shot tinseltown with um Mm -hmm. with michael what was the post sort of did you have an idea of what it was going to be before you started shooting it or did it yeah yeah i um so after like a week and a half of 
scouting and you know trying to figure out if it was um if we were able to get access into the factories and what were the limitations of the shoot I did write a very very simple script of um it was meant to be like a Kafkaesque thing of a woman making her way up a factory um different floors of a factory trying to find this man that doesn't exist and so once we had that we had to go about street casting and blending in and filming without permission a lot of the time or filming with certain permissions that were based on I don't want to say lies but based based on a a version of the truth um and yeah it was I I sort I came back from that trip feeling um incredibly stressed but alive um in a way that I yeah I just hadn't felt that excited and challenged in a re- in a long time and uh the post took a little while just because it was all based on favors and people who were interested in either working with me or the project but yeah once I think a earlier cut of a was accepted into MIF and once that we had that deadline um it all happened fairly quickly yeah a lot of your films have have sort of done big festival runs uh I guess how because you know there's this whole sort of idea of having a um a strategy when one does a short film or or, a fa- or any sort of project I guess that's independently done of having a strategy of how you're going to release it or get it out into the world is that something that you've sort of abided to or are you more interested in just getting as many eyes I guess initially and then obviously as you've developed your body of work Mm. the festivals that have accepted your work have gotten higher and higher I imagine yeah I mean I I came from an era where short films were sort of your only option as a emerging filmmaker and especially at VCA they were like you make a short, you get into Sundance, you make your feature. Like that was the only <laughs> That's the path. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I was always like, yeah, but um, so how do I pay rent <laughs> in the meantime? Um, and it never felt like a realistic or tangible path to me. And I wasn't even sure if that was the dream that I wanted either. How were you paying rent out of curiosity? Oh, not very well. Um, <laughs> I had a string of jobs in hospitality for a really, really, really long time. I worked for my parents, which was, um, it was convenient in that it meant that I could dictate my Be own flexible. schedule. Yeah, but emotionally it was awful yeah, because like they did not respect this career choice in any way. Are they still uh, selling computers? No, no. So by that time, they had a couple of restaurants. So I worked in some of them. And, um, but I mean, like, it did mean that because I could work part time there, um, I had a lot of little jobs in the industry as well, like note taking in TV development rooms. And yeah, I was able to get little bits of grant money Mm -hmm. for various things. So you saw, like, that there was a bigger picture. So you're just like, I'll just suck it up and work earning some money yeah, with my folks yeah but that's going to give me the flexibility to continue to pursue yeah well to me i never i i've never wanted to um i only like doing things when i feel really ready yeah <laughs> like i need to be extremely prepared like even when i buy a new camera online i need to watch all the unboxings on youtube <laughs> so i know what the experience is right. like before yeah. i buy it um yeah, so the VCA path, I was like, oh, I just don't want to do one short and make my feature. I don't want to be making stupid, like, rookie mistakes on my feature like that. So in my mind, I always wanted to make more shorts and do television and practice things, um, yeah, before the first feature. And uh, so my midterm goal was to make television and get into that. Uh, and at the time, like in 2011, TV was like not that cool in Australia, especially. No one wanted to do it. So it was still like something that 
I felt a little bit embarrassed by when I said I wanted to do it. Um, but yeah, I kind of really focused on it and tried to meet producers and get into those companies. And you, but you didn't feel like you were having very much luck. No, no. I um, I remember the year after I finished VCA, I was lucky enough to get an agent um, based on my student shorts. And at the time, she was like. Well, for someone like you, you know, normally in Australia, it takes five years to get your first job. Uh, and, it's, and I was just like, oh my God, five years? No, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do it in a short amount of time. She was right. I mean, actually, no, she was wrong. It took longer than five years. I think it took six. <laughs> right. um, yeah, to get my first actual directing job. But yeah, I did so many attachments and still made my own shorts along the way just to really make sure I felt ready. Yeah. And then 2017, I guess, were, last year was a pretty big breakout year for you in terms of actually starting to work yeah. in television. Yeah, so it really was um, one of those scenes where it feels like a bit of an overnight success, but it just took six years to get yeah, there. Yeah. Um, but I think because I had done so many attachments and assisting roles when the first, I guess when the floodgates opened, it all lined up very quickly and it was easy for people to believe that I was going to be fine and ready. But that first job on Mustangs took, it just took forever to get. Yeah. And I suppose people in the industry already know you because you've been around, you've been doing attachments or small jobs here and there. Yeah. Yeah. And from my understanding, when they were asking around for directors on Mustangs, um, it was just so many different people who knew me through my attachments and whatnot who had said my name so that it just became like, I think it just, I guess, an irresistible um, proposition. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What was the process like of, of getting that job? Did you just get a phone call and they were like, do you want to do this job or was it a bit longer than that? Um, I, I had heard about the project in 2016. Um, I can't remember how, but I was... Cause, and someone was like, this feels like a perfect show for you to be on. But I, I, I was really defeated by that time. I just didn't think it was going to happen. So I was like, yeah, as if. Um, but I was in China again. I was... Um, doing research I had gotten some script money to do research on this feature I'm writing at the moment and I was in Inner Mongolia when an email came through which which was like hi (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm the producer of Mustangs Uh, do you want to have a chat about you directing a blog and because China with Gmail and stuff it was very hard to and even Skype is very scratchy at the time so we had this terribly awkward Skype interview where I couldn't tell if they actually understood anything I was saying because it was so jarry <laughs> and um and I also had terrible food poisoning oh. at the time yeah so I was like but I didn't want to cancel the interview so I was like covered in sweat but like trying to not have my voice shake um I think them if they they must have just thought I was really nervous or something but I was actually just very very sick yeah, yeah. And so, and and from there, they offered you. Yeah, to... yeah. So after that interview, um, they sent me some scripts to read, and that was when my agent was like, "Oh yeah, this feels, this is a good sign." Um, it, I, I just, <laughs> I actually just wanted someone to say, "Great, you're hired." Like <laughs> that was, and that that never ever came. So I was always kind of like, so. <laughs> Is this like are we are we on? And um, yeah, I think it took another three months for it to feel um, feel legit. E- even though I now understand the process is that no one ever says you got it. It yeah. was yeah, it's just a You're bit hired of, lady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What was the first day on set for you, or you know, the first episode? I suppose even the, the whole block I could imagine would have been a fairly. Um, anxiety-inducing yeah. experience yeah. when you're sort of stepping from, I'm gonna, I'm working on my own project, the pressure is only from myself and from the people that I've brought in to yeah. suddenly you've got producers and networks and whatnot yeah. wanting you to deliver a product. Yeah, and you're really slotting in to 
a show that because I'm, I'm so used to having spent years or, or at least you know months on an idea and feeling like I'm part of the DNA of of the world but um yeah to suddenly kind of come in and still have the bravado of giving notes and saying no this is you know how we could make it better and stuff I was I was really really nervous and I also felt like the new kid at school as well because everyone had uh, you know they've worked it with each other on other shows before and but you know I I feel really lucky because that really was the perfect first show for me everyone was very welcoming and warm um the first day I remember being extremely nervous and I'm pretty sure I was really pale because all the blood had drained from my face because everyone kept asking if I was okay at breakfast and I think people were starting to be like oh she is she gonna have a nervous breakdown um but as soon as I started it just felt like oh cool I know what I'm doing everything's gonna be really fine yeah and we ended up finishing like half an hour early which is always good. Absolutely. Everyone's happy, no yeah. overtime. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun. How did you reconcile with yourself those sort of feelings and um, get over the idea of, you know, you said that you had like some ideas for things that you felt could have been better. I could imagine that the temptation could be to just go, no, they know what they're doing or no, it's not my place. But to actually go in there and go, no, these, uh, I'm the director and these are the things that I think could improve the show. I think I was very, I can't handle not saying my opinion. It often gets me into trouble. Um, my agent's always like, I think you need to do some media training. But um, Dial back on the Twitter a little bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I think what I did was I was just a lot more, I tiptoed around what I really wanted to say, um, or it took me a lot longer to say it. Uh, and once I felt comfortable in that they weren't going to, you know, judge me for my ideas or that I wasn't going to get fired immediately, <laughs> um, I just kind of let loose and, um, yeah, it's fine. I'm still around. Yeah. <laughs> still getting hired. I suppose it's kind of like what's the what's the intention because your intention is obviously a collaborative one and to make a better product as opposed to just kind of throwing your weight around or like yeah. trying to have an opinion for the sake of it. Yeah, and I think that's the thing in that a lot of the time I'm just trying to understand what the motivation is. Uh, so it's not so much that it's not working. I I always approach it like, what am I not understanding here? Which is um, more of a, it's a better way of inviting someone into, yeah, into your ideas. Mm. So once you directed this block, it was three episodes, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it must have been very exciting when it actually went to air to see something that you directed. On yeah, TV. yeah. I um, and I think that's something that I love about television is how fast paced it is. In that, within the space of a year, you could have made five hours of something that everyone can enjoy as a community at a certain time as opposed to five years for one for 90 minutes <laughs> um yeah and I remember because a few years ago I did uh ABC doco and you know I remember what that felt like when it's trend trended on Twitter and stuff just that sense of um community enjoying what your intention was so yeah that was that was yeah incredibly exciting that was the doco was that was suicide and me yes that's yeah. right how important do you think it is that you had because you know your your body of work kind of varies from drama to comedy through to documentary and sort of i guess cause related documentary mm. to have that all that experience under your belt to then walk into network tv as a director, do you think that diversity and that, well, um, the ability to kind of oscillate between those varying styles helped your voice and your style as a director? It, um, it definitely doesn't hinder it because <laughs> like I look at a lot of the directors I admire, like, um, 
you know, like someone like Ang Lee, whose body of work does what well, he he started doing sort of comedy immigrant comedies and has done the Hulk and you know Brokeback Mountain and stuff. It's it's a huge uh, scale of emotions across yeah across um everything he's directed and that's something that i've always looked to as an example because in the end it's just what i'm ultimately interested in is to make someone feel something anything and the genre almost doesn't matter um i did the doco because it was a way of getting something made and i wanted to i'm always interested in doing things that i'm not comfortable with and i was not comfortable making a documentary it was incredibly hard um but i walked away learning something about the structure of storytelling that i haven't been able to replicate in anything i've made since and i always think about documentary as like oh i should I should really do that again. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's just about furthering storytelling skills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the reason I ask is I, I read a... I, I watched there was this uh, Spielberg documentary on a flight that I was on, which I think it's an HBO doc. And one of the points was like... Was it? It was ninety three, I think, or ninety four. Spielberg made both Jurassic Park and Schindler's yeah. List. Yeah. And you just kind of go, wow. I mean, those are like two masterful films. Yeah. And you just, I couldn't think of a director in today's sort of day and age with the exception of maybe like if Scorsese released The Irishman and then a documentary yeah. about like Keith Richards or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. at the same time. But yeah. it's like we get so kind of pigeonholed into like, this is what you are and this is how you fit into the industry. This is your kind of, that's yeah. your spot. This is, yeah. And this is your space and this is what you do. But to kind of have a, a, a great sort of slate or repertoire, I think, is very valuable. Yeah, and um, and uh, absolutely that was something that I've always... I, I guess I haven't been consciously trying to replicate, but I know that in my own tastes, uh, you know, um, for example, at film school, everyone was like, that's the Wes Anderson guy. That's the Scorsese guy. And I think to me, people were like, are you the Wong Kar Wai girl? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> Is that the only Asian filmmaker you can name? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I always found it really hard to kind of go, oh, these are my influences and, and that's it. Just, just because I, you know, I'm so wildly... Um, expansive in what I like to watch uh, and I think that's now been yeah really replicated in what I'm making mm. and continuing into your 2017 you know you also directed Sisters mm. uh, and Homecoming Queens which is a show that you had written as well uh, no it's a show that I developed so developed. I executive produced it yeah. yeah um so I was I worked with um Michelle Law who's someone I've worked with before and another writer and I was on board it even before a word had been written so I was like really in the in the heart of the world um which is something that I always yeah appreciate and that took about two years from um, inception to execution right yeah and did you feel like the time was right because you you were sort of coming off the back of a couple of you know high profile tv gigs in mustangs and sisters that that was sort of the right time to be executing this project or did it was it just coincidence um a little bit of both in that uh, the all the financing sort of lined up t timeline wise it happened to have been on the back of sisters no actually we had to push the shoot for homecoming queens back because i was hired on sisters all oh, right okay but um i don't think i would have directed that uh as well as i did if not for the experience of both sisters and Mustangs, just because Mustangs was so, even though it was fully financed, um, 
for the quality of the product SBS was expecting, it was very, very low budget. Yeah. Um, and it was, it, yeah, it put a lot of pressure on all the departments. Um, and I think we got away with it purely through the experience I had had of knowing how to quickly problem solve. What was the, was there a, a big difference stepping off Mustangs onto sisters? Was, did you notice a, change aside from the people that you were answering to um yeah i mean the the budget level was a huge difference in that you know one was a half hour kids show into a prime time um commercial network show uh i could tell by the uh, you know something as simple as the catering or um the access of certain equipment and yeah and just little things like that that I realized I was getting really spoiled on when I stepped onto the homecoming queen set in that it was suddenly like, it was basically like a student shoot. Um, and I was down to one camera and I had to move my own split and it, it was fine because I, um, you know, having done the China thing, I was like, yeah, I'm cool sound recording and directing at the same time. But, um, yeah, it was just uh, all. It was basically within the space of a month, the two sets, and I suddenly went, "Oh, okay, we're here again. Cool, <laughs> cool. I know." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but the you know what got me through it was the fact that I really felt like I had fostered this project from the get go, and I was yeah insanely protective over it. Did you have uh, moments of? that same sort of anxiety again when you went on to sisters that you'd had initially because it was perhaps more pressure yeah it was um i think slightly it was very different actually um because you know every set has its own chemistry and i was doing the last block on sisters so everyone was very set in their ways and um also a lot of them had worked together on offspring as well for years so i was like really I was not only was I the new kid but this was like the last term of high school and I was just like (laughs) hello I'm gonna be school captain now (laughs) and tell you what's what um but that crew was insanely skilled and professional and um there were there were quite a few times where I where I was like oh okay this is how a script supervisor can make my directing better or oh, this is what a brilliant first AD can do for me. It was just, yeah, little things that, you know, I can take into my feature and kind of know why I'm fighting for certain things. And that was what what I've always wanted from television. So you feel like this is, as opposed to it being the space where you'd like to live, this is really a continuation of your education as a filmmaker? Yeah, I I definitely think so. Um, you know the way content's moving. I TV and film. Like, what what are the differences? Um, I look at my own viewing habits, and I'm mostly watching television, as well. Um, for me, the difference is it's episodic or it's one off, uh, rather than film and TV, and. I the dream will always be to make a feature film um, because that was why I wanted to do directing in the first place and that'll always remain first prize but um, yeah realistically if I think about how I'll sustain my voice in the future I can't help but feel it'll be in the episodic realm yeah and I guess it's a good way to keep so much of creativity is about keeping your tools sharp and I could imagine that the way that TV is turned around in Australia on network TV really requires you to be sort of top of your game have everything really sharp and be being you know making decisions very quickly yeah definitely and you know with all the streaming platforms the barriers, the content is becoming so globalized and so is talent um, in front and behind the camera. And more so than ever, making a show doesn't 
it feels less like this is an Australian show or, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to plan things for beyond the borders of this country. And I think that all really only make content better. I read an interesting quote of yours that spoke about, going back to diversity, spoke about, um, you know, if one was to make a film about people from Taiwan, that the core crew should also should reflect the story that's being told as opposed to it being just what's being put in front of the screen as diversity. Yes. And then everyone behind the camera is still, you know, white, white. middle class or upper, you know, working class, whatever. Um, And I was quite sort of intrigued by that point because I guess it goes back to you being a poster child and that, that kind of narrative being taken out of your control. And I'd be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on if you feel like that's being changed as well or that's sort of steps behind because that's not what's front and center in the public's eye. It's something that I've said before that I'm not interested in the false kind of diversity where um where storytellers hide behind blind casting um quotation marks and just sort of slap on slap into a show some people of color and let that be that i mean not to take away from the positives of blind casting but yeah i think it lures us into a false sense of okay cool this is um we're seeing characters represented properly because that's not it's not authentic to me i see it and it yeah it fuels me with a a rage and you know i think what the the future of australian content i'm interested in is where creators from different cultures or different um different genders and different sexualities are in control of images of themselves and it's not coming from um the it's where the minority are allowed to tell stories about themselves for the majority to understand because so far in history it has been the other way around yeah and i think that these sort of stories are universal you know it's not it shouldn't be necessarily that we're looking at stories in such a kind of superficial way you know it's 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 what's the message of the story what's the emotionality or the kind of um the experience of the story as opposed to literally like this is a and this is b yeah i i think so but i guess my um my main point is that when you're empowering say people of color to to tell that story it's it doesn't it stops being an interpretation of what you know a caucasian person might imagine to be the truth it uh, um it's a it, it's a better reflection of of that story and uh and i think that's my um my main issue with what happens in australia specifically you know if you look at in the u.s with people like shonda rhimes and how she staffs her rooms um in in australia indigenous storytelling is really ripe um and i think that's because there's an investment that's been made uh into protecting their voice and i yeah i wish that uh that could happen for other cultures for yeah for example you know asian australians have been here since the gold rush and i can name on one hand the amount of screen content that has yeah has been made here um about that experience which isn't good enough. No, not at all. Yeah. How for you, uh, you know, as we sort of started this conversation talking about this paradigm shift, but kind of 
going through the usual kind of filmmaker angst of having the five or six years in the wilderness. Mm. How have you felt you've managed to stay the course through all that and kind of just scratch and claw until finally you actually had your 2017 breakout year? Well, I think about quitting a lot. I'm pretty sure I thought about quitting once a year. And then at one point I did quit for a month. Like I gave up completely in 2014 um, and looked on Seek and um, yeah, thought about applying for proper office jobs and stuff. And then I realized I was trained in nothing and had no skills other than in, um, in directing. So that kind of got me back on track and yeah. And I just thought, Oh, I just have to keep making a go of it. Yeah. And, and like, I have been really privileged in that along the way, basically every year something little will happen. Like a, a, I'll get, you know, a little film grant or an attachment or so forth to just really keep me going and I think you really have to hold on to that because it's very easy for either voices inside your own head or family or whatever to, to take that away. Yeah, I have I have emails from people that I sometimes look at that reminds me that it's it's okay and it's it's worth it. But yeah, it takes a lot of sacrifice and a lot of um being alone in the wilderness i think that i think sacrifice is the kind of big one that i've been sort of reflecting on a lot myself over the last sort of 10 or so years since i finished film school and not even necessarily consciously going in the moment i didn't consciously go i'm going to sacrifice this Mm. but just simply not being able to do certain things or having Mm. to kind of forego certain things Mm. that might that other friends might be doing or family might be doing because I was pursuing this creative life. Yeah, no, I've definitely lost some friendships and relationships along the way. And you just miss, like I've missed weddings. That's, that's and... kind of specifically what I was thinking yeah. of, certain weddings and things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. i go and have a wedding in Bali. I'm like, I can't afford yeah. several thousand dollars to come to your wedding. I'm really sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I was on, I just felt like I spent all of my 20s on the poverty line and just can't do certain things when your friends are buying houses and stuff. Um, it's funny now that, cause now they're deep in their mortgages and I suddenly feel like I have disposable income that the pendulum has really <laughs> swung back. And I'm like, let's go to this fancy restaurant for dinner. And they're all like, Oh no, I've got my mortgage. Yeah. Um, kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's weirdly frustrating because it's like, oh, our lifestyles are never going to match up. But yeah, the sacrifice thing is something that I don't think I nev- never thought about or realized when I was younger. And I don't think young filmmakers realize now. And it's something that I'm trying to bring up in talks. Um, yeah, in talks and stuff. Uh, the How much that you'll disappoint the loved ones in your life because of your career choices yeah the chorus at my family events was is this job paying you yeah which i'm sure most creatives could relate to yeah totally and my parents stopped um caring about any nominations or i remember i was nominated for the actors and my mom was like oh does that come with prize money and i went no i actually have to pay a bit of money to go and she was like i don't care (laughs) don't don't talk to us until there's money involved right yeah. yeah yeah i guess that's perhaps a generational thing as well because yeah. our parents generation particularly if they're migrants would mm. be so kind of industrial in their mindset of you know work equals money equals security yeah or whatever the you know equation is yeah that when they see their kids who they have openly or perhaps not openly but who have nurtured they've nurtured and encouraged to kind of be free thinking or liberal in the way that they want to pursue their life suddenly not having that security I could mm. imagine would be quite challenging yeah absolutely and um and I think it's something that I've made peace with now because I understand where they're coming from in that like they all they want is for me to be safe because they've chosen a life where they've 
put me in an unsafe environment by uprooting and leaving their homeland. Um, so for me to then make a choice that will threaten that paradigm, um, it would be terrifying to them. And um, yeah, and my, I mean, for my parents, their religion is money. So yeah. um, I'm definitely in a space where I'm challenging that <laughs> every day. <laughs> yeah, you're denouncing their God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's your uh, what's your feature about? Uh, it's set in, in so in China there are all these fully built but empty cities that um, the media refer to as ghost cities for various reasons. Um, people have never moved in, even though they're designed to be like cities of the future. So it's about a um, a biracial Australian woman who tracks her long absent father down in one of these cities and goes there not knowing that it's completely desolate and uh yeah so her search for her father is also her search for her own cultural identity right yeah Hmm. and what's the have you got how long have you been working on this one for now um a couple of years we're on the third draft now and close to uh, confirming our producer so it's it's kind of at the time where well I should know within the next year if this is going to be a real thing that's going to go ahead and, are you working not. with Michelle on this one as well no I'm working with a writer called Penelope Chai cool yeah is it strange have you collaborated with her before no it was our, um we met at a film function or networking event and sort of got to talking this this was an idea that's been that has existed in my mind as like a one-liner for a really long time and I just couldn't quite crack it and I mentioned it um yeah a couple of years ago to her and we got to talking and I just thought oh this would be a great collaborator um for this story and yeah it we got some development money that allowed us to go to one of these cities um, and started writing there. And yeah, here we are. And that was just before you got the gig on. Mustangs, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a very, very strange thing where it was just one thing after another. And yeah. Um, it, has but, it slowed down for you now or is it still? Um, no it's it's very constant which I'm grateful for um but I did I had a slight um I I don't want to say nervous breakdown but it was definitely a panic something (laughs) at the start of the year and um yeah and uh I just couldn't get a get control over my anxiety it just felt like it was constant and my heart rate was like out of control and uh, I had to do one of those barley those gross barley retreats that I imagine white women do all the time (laughs) and um, especially after they just get divorced yeah yeah so um I had a eat pray love experience (laughs) no um but yeah the pray part yeah yeah I just went to Bali and did some yoga and like and meditated and stuff um which which really helped so because I yeah I just yeah I was starting to get into that slump where I'm like uh, I don't want to work anymore. Like, I don't want to... This is not what I signed up for. Yeah. Um, but I, I just realized I needed a holiday. I think it's hard to remember that when your work is so tied up in your passion and, it's, and also when you're younger and you don't have children, like, um, to just realize when enough is enough and to slow down. So, yeah, I definitely experienced that. Yeah, and I think also the hours that film mm. or TV, that that world kind of demands of you when mm. you are in the flow of just working on a job. You yeah, know, it's like there's no real time for anything else. Yeah, That's your yeah, life. yeah, totally. And even when you're like not on set or not at your computer tapping, your mind's still like churning away as well. Yeah. Did you find that having like this feature or you know your own creative projects? Uh, would ground you when you were you know working on the on these tv shows the for hire shows yeah definitely um the dream in my mind was always like half a year for hire and half a year working on my own stuff and so far for the past year and a half or so it's definitely worked out um 
so I've spent well I'm kind of in the next two months being able to write and focus on a a variety of my own projects and then in June I start again on um a, a tv show so yeah to dip in and out is the best way i think yeah it sounds like a good dream yeah i like that dream yeah i'm gonna steal that dream yeah <laughs> do it it's great yeah. it's exhausting yeah you won't ever see your friends but it's great right. i don't have any friends anyway <laughs> yeah, so that's why exactly. i do this podcast so i can have human contact yeah. <laughs> um thank you for uh, for chatting with me Corey. um if anyone wants to see your short films aside from your first sci-fi short they can see them on <laughs> coreychen.com that's right uh, and if they want to reach out to you about doing their podcast, apparently you can just do that on Twitter. Yeah, very easy. I'm very easily accessible because yeah. I don't do anything other than sit <laughs> in my computer. So, <laughs> anytime. Well, I'm glad to have gotten you up from your computer. I finish all of the podcasts with the same question, which is what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I really like going to arcades. So, um, I have a particular addiction to claw machines oh yeah yeah it's probably a gambling addiction but i do often spend 50 dollars plus to try and um take home some plushies right yeah i used to have that as well actually yeah i used to work at the jam factory uh as a projectionist back when 35 mil was a thing yeah <laughs> and they had like these two skill testers like mm. at the bottom of the stairs so every time i would leave work or go to work i would have to go past them and um yeah some of my wage would would go into them yeah like it's the it's such a addiction like even talking about it now my heart rate is starting to pick up like the thrill of the when the claw goes down and you think you're going home with a plushie but then it just slips out yeah, yeah that's uh that's a dichotomy of emotions right there <laughs> Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you.